0: Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for joining this next episode of In the Nick of Time. We're so excited today. We have a great guest, uh, Richard Burr, joining us uh, from Traceable. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody to uh, subscribe to the to the mailing list. If you've not done that yet, go to in the nick of time.tv. So we're not dependent on social media uh, to be able to reach out to you guys. Uh, also, if you've not seen Uh, we have the learnwithlink.com is up uh, with uh, new videos every month so go check it out Uh, massive discounts for veterans and early adopters here uh, so go check that out Uh, also uh, the latest videos uh, that we posted uh, last week uh, is about uh, sql injections so if you want to check the subject uh, and also let us know if you have uh, a topic you want us to cover uh, for the next videos we're gonna have uh, Uh, a deep dive on how to make software more uh, modular, which uh, leads us to APIs and containers, uh, which will be a great uh, piece of the discussion of today. Uh, How to cut your monolithic uh, stack into uh, containers and uh, how do you assess uh, security risks of these different modules, both open-source commercial and, of course, government IP. And uh, how do you do your assessment of those uh, Lego blocks in a modular fashion so you can actually swap them instead of having uh, a NIST uh, package, uh, an RMF uh, package that would be kind of uh, a monolithic architecture uh, so you can be more flexible and have the ability to deploy your software on different uh, environments from the low side to the high side and so on. So that's going to be an interesting uh, next video coming up. I wanted also to uh, let you know about the the, the, uh, in the nick of time uh, store. If you go on store.inningoftime.tv, 100% of the profits, and I say it again, 100% of the profits uh, go to the Fisher House. Uh, So please uh, go check that out. Uh, Helping, obviously, our uh, veterans uh, go buy a t-shirt or mug or whatever you want. We have uh, a lot of fun stuff there. If you have ideas of other design, let us know. We can create that for you as well um quick announcement we're gonna be uh, launching a new company called ask sage uh that's a breaking news here uh with a, a chat bot using gpt dedicated to uh government and uh duty uh teams um and so we already have about 17 teams that reached out when we uh posted about the bot on LinkedIn but if you have uh, use cases that you want us to look into with a bot uh it could be uh you know very vast in terms of uh, ability to summarize and uh, uh, provide insights uh ingest data uh we can do a lot of different things in fact we started by ingesting all all our videos and so now the bot, the bot is literally creating my next videos script so i'm just a pretty face reading the stuff to you that's how this is going to work now with technology so uh uh you know if you have uh, different ideas reach out to us on linkedin uh with this uh uh gpt bot we kind of focus on the veterans sla- uh, slash uh, government uh duty aside uh to bring tangible value to the war fighters uh already great discussions in the aoc amc uh, community and and the, the CDAO's office so let us know if you have ideas with that i wanted to uh bring in a second our guest i want to uh, to give you a, a quick rundown of his background, which is obviously very impressive, uh, Richard Byrd is the chief security officer of traceable.ai. Um, he's left the corporate world five years ago after 20 years uh, as an enterprise IT executive. He's held multiple uh, C-level roles in his career to include CIOs and CISOs. Um, obviously, he started as the global head of identity uh, for the Cost, uh, consumer and commercial business of J.P. Morgan uh, was spending 11 years um, with Chase. After that, he uh, joined uh, Ping Identity, which uh, we had people of the, of the Ping company here uh, before, uh, and he was the chief uh, customer information formation officer uh, over there. Uh, he's a senior fellow uh, with the Zero Trust Institute. If you don't know the institute, go check it out. A lot of great uh, publication engagements there. Uh, he's worked obviously uh, uh, extensively with the U.S., UK, European, and Australian government on on different policy uh, issues regarding cybersecurity. He's a speaker all over the place. You may have uh, heard him already. Uh, widely known as the guy with the bow tie, although uh, he doesn't have one on the on the picture here, uh, so we're going to give him a pass there. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, very famous. A lot of great uh, speaking engagement. I've heard it many times uh, speak. So. We're very lucky to have him if you want to follow him. Of course, he's massive on LinkedIn. Goes uh all bird uh slash all bird on the LinkedIn.com link there and go check him out. With that, uh welcome Richard.
1: I'm here. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> yeah, how are you? Uh good to see you. So excited. You know, you you have such a, a, a vast breadth of experience, both on the on the corporate side, which somehow, you know, uh some people make it look like dirty, which is not. Uh, it's actually a very different universe, obviously, uh, between, you know, the uh, uh, product-facing kind of uh, comp- companies and the, uh, the service side and uh, uh, larger, you know, Fortune 100 companies, obviously, focused on both uh, security and also compliance. Uh, so we'll talk today about API security before we get started, uh, you know, with your background, so, so uh, different from, uh, from everybody else that we, we know. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your, your journey there.
1: Yeah, it, it, my journey is uh, completely accidental. <laughs> so um, I came into IT. I, I had been uh, in the service, uh, and I, uh, you know, I came out during a military drawdown from active duty. I was an 82nd Airborne paratrooper all the way. And uh, I came out during a military drawdown, and I went to work in construction project management and uh, went to work for a little company at the time that was struggling to reach its uh, um, $100 billion revenue mark, which was Walmart. And I opened up Northeast uh, US, did a bunch of uh, uh, construction projects. And I didn't know at the time that uh, there was a desperate need for experienced project managers and technology. So in the early nineties, somebody saw the potential in me and asked me uh, to uh, come to a, a payment processing company. And uh, that started my, uh, my IT journey. So 28-ish, almost 30 years later, I did the first half of my career in IT operations, uh, heavy uh, background in uh, middle and back office uh, processing for uh, banks, and then eventually investment banking and hedge fund administration. And then economic downturn of Um, there was uh, interest in creating the first centralized cybersecurity program or information security at the time. Uh, at uh, JPMorgan Chase, and I was invited to come back, uh, and I, I joined, and that really began the second phase of this career with uh, 100% focus on cybersecurity. Uh, working at scale and, and working at the scale and the size that you work at at JPMorgan Chase uh, gave me a lot of exposure. I uh, did a lot of um, issue remediation with the Department of Justice, the Department of Defense, uh, supporting uh, you know our efforts at Chase with those organizations. And uh, eventually, I just decided that it was time to um, hang up the the spurs uh, in corporate. I thought I was just going to take a bit of a break. And I joined um, a, uh, a company where I was a strategic advisor for about a year. And I just had so much fun working with the solution side after having been the executive buyer and operation, operator of those solutions. I was just having so much fun and I was learning so many new things. Uh, the, the appetite for uh, learning got me eager to stay in this space. Did uh, a few years with Ping Identity, love the experience, and then received a call from uh, Sanjay uh, at uh, at Traceable, who's one of the co-founders. And he said, we need you to come uh, work for us. So love my uh, opportunity now. I'm back in an operational space where I am the functioning chief information security officer for Traceable. But I also uh, am doing all of my market-facing activities, working with governments, agencies, organizations, uh, as well as uh, you know, speaking frequently um, and, and working with the media on trying to help make uh, you know, the issues in cybersecurity a little bit more understandable to the, uh, to the average person and, uh, and thoroughly enjoying uh, this journey. It's been amazing.
0: And that's what you've done you know, very well is uh, your ability to explain things so anyone can actually understand what's going on, right? I think that's uh, one of your uh, very special skills Always uh, very impressed with uh, how you can summarize things. I've heard you speak a few times, and it's it's very clear that uh, uh, that that opens the door to engagements with the government side, uh, the leadership, uh, Congress, but also, uh, you know, 14500 uh, customers. Obviously, you've been on the other side of it. I like to believe it's, it's more fun to be uh, building this stuff and <laughs> kind of touch a little bit of both. So you kind of... Uh, you kind of living the dream now being in the middle of, uh, kind of both, uh, uh because you get to, 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 still be, you know, on the product facing side, but you still interact with, the uh, leadership and have, uh, fun, uh, fun en- engagements with, with customers and, and government, uh, all over the world really. Um, so obviously, you know, uh, so much to talk about, but, uh, when I say looking at it, obviously, API is becoming really the, the foundation of, of how we do business. If you look at, uh, the Department of Defense, when we moved to Kubernetes and containers and started to cut the monolithic applications into Lego blocks, they turn into obviously a bunch of microservices and containers. Um, and Kubernetes itself is just a, an API, anyways. So it's it's really uh, becoming a world of of APIs. Uh, many actors obviously see that. Uh, for for many years, um, you know, people did not pay attention to API security whatsoever. There was always, you know, API gateways and and different pieces of the puzzle, but it's almost like uh, people forgot about what we learned on the VM slash traditional uh, security stuff we used to do twenty years ago. And when API came out, it's almost like uh, people's brain reset it and forgot all the key principles of cyber until uh, obviously some breaches happened again and people started to pay attention to API security again and and bringing all the common sense uh, cyber principles uh, to the API uh, universe. So when you look at what's going on, what do you see happening with all the the market knowledge and the engagements you have when it comes to API uh, security breaches?
1: I I really like what you said about, it seems like we've forgotten uh, the patterns of the past. I I raise that point (laughs) a lot. And I think it's important to to use that as a table setting for talking about what the current situation is with API security breaches. If we look at really how APIs developed, um, they they were introduced a dozen years ago now. Um, I think the white paper that announced the API economy was about a dozen years ago, and and they uh, sat relatively dormant for a number of years um, until we got into about uh, you know the 2015 ish timeframe, and then. Uh, really start to see exponential growth in the use of APIs to extract stranded business value from uh, applications and, and data stores and do that at that that layer seven, right? If we, if we look at, you know, kind of the old, uh, you know, OSI seven layer model, you know, we're now virtualizing past infrastructure, past infrastructure as a service, past OS. We're now virtualizing at the application layer. And that's where huge, massive amounts of transactions are now occurring, leveraging APIs. The problem is, is that um, you know, much like uh, you know, kind of the past examples, um, APIs are being leveraged by the development community and they've been l- largely leveraged without any security guardrails, uh, without any security guidance, without open standards. Um, when you walk into any given enterprise, they may be using you know, four or five different methods for API calls across 13, 15, 20 different groups, no centralization, no aggregation. So when we look at the current situation with API security breaches, what's very, very clear is that uh, the attack surface has expanded exponentially while also diversifying from a fragmentation standpoint, right? There are There are points of exposure now that are being offered up by open endpoints on APIs, misconfigured APIs that just simply don't have a parallel uh, in our past experiences other than a wide open port. And uh, the when we look at what's happening from a breach and exploit standpoint, bad actors are really clearly capitalizing on the current state of confusion, division, um, and, and fragmentation in the way that we're managing API development and deploying APIs within the IT estate and also within the business estate. So bad guys know that this is, you know, a big deal. Um, we know this because 2022 marks the uh, year that API breaches and exploits uh, were the largest attack surface utilized by bad actors. And headline news was, uh, you know, substantial around API breaches coming in through the end of 2022. Um, I always like to say that what we saw in the October-ish timeframe in Australia, Australia is the bellwether for what's coming in the United States, uh, which were you know, four massive customer data exposures in a row. Uh, the fastest uh, it, it set of linked uh, exposures that I've ever seen in my working career uh, that actually exposed tens of millions of customers, customer accounts Uh, not just name and address, but sensitive and personal information. The MetaBank uh, exposure now looks like it may potentially yield a $20,000 payment to every single Australian impacted by the MetaBank Metabank breach. Um, It's unbelievable, uh, you know, the, the level of damage that can be done with APIs. And yet we're still arguing about the need for API security in most organizations and entities around the world.
0: So first, now I'm wondering why I didn't move to Australia so I could get the 20,000 bucks. We don't <laughs> well, get only- anything like this here. <laughs> yeah, it's only 20,000
1: right. Australian dollars. So
0: it's more like uh, you know, 13 bucks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, don't be too mean. It's like 15. Um, so obviously, uh, which by the way, if you look at Australia, they do, you know, obviously the government is a little extreme sometimes We say it was COVID. But uh, when you look at uh, uh, their understanding of, of um, uh, privacy And data, before we we dig into, you know, the API side of things, uh, what's your thoughts when it comes to the U.S. lack of uh, any type of uh, regulation when it comes to uh, privacy? You know, you look at GDPR, of course, in in Europe, which, you know, some people argue that, you know, might be a little bit extreme. Um, You know, obviously, I'm not sure that led to uh, cyber improvements, uh, maybe compliance improvements. I don't know, but uh, I've yet to see a lot of um, great outcomes. But you know, maybe some, some maybe uh, anecdotal stuff. But uh, do you think we should do better here in the U.S. when it comes to uh, really understanding uh, the importance of data, but also uh, protecting it?
1: Without a doubt, and and but my, <laughs> I guess my reasoning and my rationale are a little bit different. Um, than taking the standard uh, data privacy protection for data privacy protection's sake, which does seem to be kind of the guiding uh, policy methodology used in the UK, UK EU, Australia. Um, my, my attitude about this is, is the lack of a national data privacy standard in the United States has very clearly put us at an economic disadvantage from uh, from a global business standpoint, right? If, yeah. if you are, yeah, if you are working... Um, you know, in a multinational corporation or a U.S. corporation trying to do business outside of the United States, the amount of friction that you have to go through in, in signing, managing, dealing with one-off singular data protection uh, agreements or addendums is onerous. Um, it, this is actually a case where the lack of regulation um, is creating more friction than if we had regulation. Now, the the big thing that I see is that the, the real need for data privacy is simply to enforce a demand against corporations and organizations for responsible data stewardship. And one of the things that I, I really feel strongly about is you hear constantly, you know, the the cloud has generated all of this additional value. I'm, I'm old enough to remember that the original business value proposition for the cloud was we were all going to get compute for free. That didn't work out. Um, <laughs> I
0: pick one a bit of money. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. But um, what w- I don't think that it is the, the CPU that's available uh, to us now, this, this infinite level of compute that's available to us now that's created the data privacy problem. I believe that it's the um, the massive reduction in the cost of storage. And we right. used to have problems all the time in the enterprise of people keeping copies of copies of copies, you know, and that's when our EMC, you know, rigs used to cost us, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now you can save anything all the time, every time. And because of this massive propagation of uh, data that is a duplicate of duplicates of duplicates, um, we've just expanded the risk of, of that data by multiple times unnecessarily, right? Because cheap storage is available because cheap storage is driven by cloud technologies. And I think that this notion of data privacy needs to be a demand for that reasonable stewardship for data and a true consumer protection uh, level of, of data privacy, not another, you know, you have to report your breaches, you know, faster. Like I always say, like reporting your be- breaches faster is like the cops showing up at your house two days after you were robbed <laughs> to tell you what was stolen. It doesn't help right. consumers at all. It doesn't help citizens at all. But I do think that there's room for smart conversations about this. But obviously, the the current tensions and the you know the year's worth of tensions uh, in the House and the Senate Senate um, have made it very very difficult to make any progress. And yet we're not acknowledging the fact that being behind on this is is having an economic impact on our ability to do global business.
0: Yeah, spot on. Nothing that the term limits would not solve, but that's a different problem. Uh, <laughs> let's look at uh, let's look at uh, API again. Uh, you know, people obviously argue you know, APIs, it's just, uh, you know, another uh, traditional HTTP endpoint, although, you know, there's different use cases. But what, what makes API special and, and harder uh, to po- protect? Or are they even harder to protect? or It's just uh, just a lack of uh, due diligence.
1: Well, the, the, the beginning point of the conversation about why they're hard to protect is because virtually no company knows how many they have. Uh, I there was a conversation that I was having over beers at the end of last week um, with an old, old colleague of mine. We've been working together for decades and um, he asked me this same question, like what makes them special and why they're hard to protect? And I said, well, first of all, let's not add to the mysticism of technology. They're not special right They're 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 an enablement technology that allows us to extract value from uh, from from assets and resources. But what makes them difficult to protect is again, that repeat of a pattern. I can remember the days when I walked into data centers and there were conversations about how many firewall policies or rules do you have? And you would have your your staff look at you and go, we don't know, right? And, And the lack of knowledge about those firewall rules in itself represented a risk. Now, it it obviously was an undimensioned risk because you didn't even know how many you had. And this is what we're seeing replayed in the API space. We're seeing, you know, it's almost like a repeat of the CASB days when people were like, how many uh, cloud applications are your employees using? And us good executives would say, oh, I think like 30 or 40. And they go run the scan, you find out there's 400, you know, web applications being used by your staff, you know, of which you only know about 30. Right? And so the, these same kind of mechanics are happening with APIs. The problem is, is scale uh, and volume, right? APIs are able to be deployed rapidly. Um, APIs are able to be done so in a way that is non-intrusive to kind of existing code states for solutions and applications. So you can work them independently. You't you, know, you don't bring down production uh, because you've dropped in an API that's accessing sensitive data and pulling it from a source system and then delivering it back to an application because you now have this middleman right, with APIs. So it's this this nature of an API to be outside of uh, infrastructure, outside of application uh, architecture um, and independently operating that makes them hard to protect because I'll go back to what I said originally for a decade We've put no controls, um, no strictures, um, applied no expectations for the use of a standard API uh, structure or format within our organizations. And because of this massive amount of fragmentation operationally and technologically, it's incredibly difficult to attack your API problems unless you do so intentionally. Because you've got APIs transacting internally, externally, across third parties, old hosted arrangements uh, across your multi-cloud platform strategy. And these APIs are everywhere and not where they're being able to be seen and understood from an asset standpoint. And I think that's the big gap here to close out that comment, which is um, APIs today are hard to protect because they are not treated as the assets that they are. And they are Mm -hmm. absolutely assets that need to be protected and managed.
0: Yeah, I mean, you you listed the, all of the the key aspects, right? There's obviously also the the piece of uh, you know teams moving from a monolithic architecture to to microservices, uh, teaching you know agile methodology, uh, you know starting with the uh, the Amazons of the world, uh, moving to microservices, um, arguing that uh, each team should be empowered to make their technology decisions and be able to run whatever you know pro- pro- tech stack they want to run. Uh, their own database and uh, effectively endpoints um, and you give them a lot of flexibility uh, picking their programming languages and technology stacks and uh, holding, holding them responsible for managing it and running uh, the operations of these uh, services but effectively you also open the kind the of worm of like everybody uh, you know building things in vacuums and not having any type of cohesive uh, cyber stack which is why you know, for me, I, I did this video on why Kubernetes uh, is a must. Not so much, even if you think it's overkill, that's the, the title of the video, uh, because the Kubernetes the structure and orchestration structure, uh, ingress, ingress egress, east-west traffic will give you the enforcement point centralized to not only get visibility on the uh, the east-west traffic and north south traffic, but also uh, an ability to enforce uh, rules and uh, runtime uh, behavior technologies uh, that can now uh, not only give you insight as far as what's running uh, inside of your clusters, but also what uh, uh, components each of these containers are talking to both internally, but also externally. So I think you know that kind of orchestration stack and kind of the, the DevSecOps mentality and that uh, uh, move to, to orchestration uh, hopefully, slowly, but surely should uh, start educating teams on the importance of of having a, a layer of security there uh, to pay attention to API security.
1: Absolutely. I actually really like uh, a comment that I see from Tim about SOA because I think that this is a, a really important um, example of understanding our history, right? If we look at, at SOA, SOA was was an evolutionary leap from middleware. Um, and for me, this is a this is a really interesting point that Tim makes um, because I, I was in the early days of middleware with with Tipco in the late 90s. And um, as soon as we introduced the capability for this messaging architecture, it just got out of control right? Because everybody that was in the business said, oh my gosh, this is so cool. You can extract all of this value. You can give me all of these capabilities and all of these features, and I don't have to get into some monolithic code deployment. So just give me another message, right? SOA, we did the same thing. It was anytime we introduce, and APIs are such a great example of this, anytime we introduce a transportation mechanism that is a an intermediary or a, a, a way for us to Um, tap the value of these assets in ways that we've never done before, which is the great business value proposition of APIs, it gets out of control and it gets out of control because businesses are going to do what the businesses want to do. And Security organizations, when we look exactly what's happening with security budgets today, virtually nobody on the planet has a discrete budget for API security. They may be trying to manage it within AppSec, they may be trying to manage it within DevOps, Um, But they're not actually attacking the problem, which is an issue because we go back to the SOA example, um, the longer you wait, the worse off you're going to be. The longer that we continue to not be serious about gaining control and management over these APIs, the more they're going to propagate, more zombie APIs are going to land in your organization, more undisclosed uh, open public endpoints. You know, this, this is not a problem that is going to age well. Um, and I, it, like I said, I love this SOA example because SOA also created problems that did not age well and as did middleware. So we either learn from our history and we learn from our mistakes or we suffer greater consequences because of speed and volume, which API is exponentially faster um, in terms of its capability to deliver value and deliver damage than anything else that we've seen in our technology stacks. Uh, Up to this point.
0: Yeah, the the other piece is the how short lived uh, containers and uh, orchestrating those containers can be uh, difficult because of that uh, short lived uh, kind of identity, Um, and so uh, identifying uh, APIs and things running inside of your stack make it becomes harder now that we have this cattle versus pet mentality. So. That obviously adds to the complexity of API security uh, companies uh, to, to really get the good visibility on what's going on so they don't end up creating uh, multiple duplicate of services and things, uh, particularly when you talk about horizontal scaling, uh, but also uh, canary releases, uh, A-B testing, green-blue uh, deployments. So all this stuff adds a lot of complexity. And then, of course, you talk, you talked about the... Uh, services that uh, third-party services that, that applications are using, uh, consuming from uh, other companies.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the 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 third-party equation is kind of fascinating because um, a, a tremendous amount of your third-party uh, interaction now is being driven at the API layer, and uh, if we think about you know large, let's just you know say Fortune one hundred companies that are struggling with this issue uh, and and not yet attacking it programmatically. And that's really what needs to be done. You just have to attack this thing programmatically again. Uh, But when we look at this, if if these Fortune 100 companies have networks of, hundreds if not thousands of partners, and those Fortune 100 companies are struggling with API security, and you're interacting with those third parties and their level of maturity is substantially less than, than yours as a Fortune 100 company, you you really need to be pausing and understanding the the risk that you're exposed to, um, and it's very fascinating to see that you know this this reality of risk hasn't quite registered yet, um, particularly in North America. But it hasn't resonated yet in a way that's driving um, action. Can I, if I could, Nick, I'd like a, I'd love some of the comments here as well yeah. that there's a uh, siddharth uh makes a comment about what are the best methods to make api apis robust and secure um and any new alternatives for apis well look i don't think that there are alternatives for apis because i actually think that apis are the path for the next uh eh, 10 year most technology cycles run in 10-year waves and i think that uh you know we're just seeing the beginning of the capitalization on apis um from a business value standpoint and as more it's, unfortunately, it's like meth, right? As more people you know, yield or, or gain value from the use of APIs on the business side of the equation, they're going to want more and more and more. But to take it back to how do you make your APIs robust and secure, again, this is a pattern and it raises some questions about whether or not as human beings we have the capability um, to learn and modify our behaviors. And, and by that I mean a good API is a documented API. So here we are, years later, you know, we used to say good mainframe code was documented mainframe code. Good client server code was documented client server code. And what happened, you know, through the course of our careers? Nobody documented their stuff, right? Um, Now, what's interesting in the API security space, and Traceable uh, excels at this particular piece, is that um, the ability to do uh, uh, auto discovery and cataloging while also enriching APIs without any documentation, because cool things about APIs, they're always designed for a very specific purpose. It's only when they start doing things that they're not supposed to do or weren't designed for that they're a problem. And, uh, and, and because of the nature of the, uh, the code that's required to create APIs across all the different variations, graph and um, REST and SOAP and all of that, Um, you can divine what they're intended to do, and you can actually auto-populate documentation, which is absolutely critical. You know, it's bad enough to not know what your APIs are, but if you don't know what your APIs are doing, that's an even worse situation from a risk standpoint. So robust APIs and secure APIs require understanding knowledge and then the capability to be able to monitor their changes and deviations over time. This is one of the really interesting problems with APIs, back to the, why are they hard to protect? Um, bad actors have have figured out that they can leverage APIs to do low and slow attacks. Again, this is a repeat of a pattern. Um, I lived through a massive east-west breach leveraging SSH keys uh, more than a decade ago, um, where a low and slow attack allowed those attackers to be inside of the network for a year. Right, we're seeing the same things happening with APIs that they can be modified slightly over time to be able to pivot them to deliver, you know, bad, uh, you know, outcomes. So that means that a secure and robust API absolutely has to be understood, obviously cataloged, and then monitored consistently to make sure that it is doing what it is supposed to be doing and nothing else. And those are the key characteristics of a program that's attacking uh, APIs in a way that results in secure and. Re- robust results.
0: That's the beauty also of APIs, right, like you mentioned, because the design, uh, at least if you do it well, Mm -hmm. they're supposed to be uh, doing a very precise thing. It it enables uh, machine learning, particularly to do a very good job at uh, tracking what uh, that API is doing, what it's pulling, what it's connecting to, what it's talking to, um, volume of data being, you know, pushed into uh, different uh, requests so, so that gives you uh, an edge there to protect it for, for behavior uh, detection, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, behavior detection is interesting. This kind of gets back into my favorite subject. Um, you know, folks that may have followed me over time know that um, I've been a really vocal voice in identity security and digital identity for quite some time. And, um, you know, this uh, this idea of uh, behavioral patterns or behavioral analytics associated with APIs dovetails very, very nicely with what we've learned and, and come to understand with an API. Like, if you think about the API, you know, OWASP top 10, uh, API security OAS top 10, 30% of the OWASP top 10 are, are actually tied directly to identity principles, authentication, authorization, and business object level authorization uh, or broken object level authorization. Um, this, this authorization and authentication set of mechanics um, means that you have the capability to see how an API behaves with what it is intended to transact with and in times when it's transacting with something it's not supposed to be intended with. And it's understanding that normal baseline uh, of the API behaviors divined from the code itself inside of the API that gives you the possibility to see those anomalous events based on behavior patterns, right? APIs are highly transactional. So once you have the ability to understand what that API is doing, The monitoring over time gives you the opportunity to be able to see it behave in a way that it's not supposed to. And the behavioral analytics then can be leveraged for additional uh, workflow automation orchestration, you know, for, you know, basically shutting off access in in actual runtime, um, executing uh, additional, you know, acquisition information, you know, for SOCs. I mean, there's just so many different things that you can do with it. A lot of it is just simply reusing best practices from other security domains. Um, but but for the most part, um, you know, this is a situation where I saw a comment in here about one hundred thousand API partners. I actually know one company has got, you know, thirty four thousand APIs currently. Um, so the numbers are staggering. Right. And this gets back to the point that I made that if you want to be able to do this cool stuff. You got to start out with understanding what you have to begin with.
0: Yeah, it's always back to. Uh... Asset management, right, and understanding and and tracking assets. So you you talk about identity, so that's interesting because obviously that's um, a very key piece of cyber as a whole. Um, But what, you know, obviously APIs often are consumed by people talking to systems, but also uh, non-person entities talking to other APIs. So you have this kind of uh, short-lived tokens and... uh, uh, access control uh, challenges there. Um, yeah. What do you see is different with the API identity management?
1: Well, I, there's there's a commonality and a difference in that commonality. So you know, spending so much of my time in identity, um, I, I I say this just being brutally honest, right? Identity is the um, the the forgotten uh, cousin on another continent when it comes to identity or it comes to security controls right the, the and we know this because 80% of all breaches have some identity related aspect to them and have for nearly 20 years right so we know that the identity plane from a security standpoint from a control standpoint not access management or administration but from, from a control standpoint has been extremely problematic has been underfunded and as i heard a ciso say just a couple months ago at a conference is just infrastructure and nobody wants to invest in infrastructure um, we see a repeat of some of those uh, kind of negative I- impacts to the API space. Um, but there's a lack of appreciation for uh, the notion of, of APIs making authorization calls, authorization being one of the least secured components of the, uh, the security stack. Um, there's a problem with persistent authentication which, I mean, in and of itself is an immediate violation of of anybody trying to build a zero-trust architecture. You don't allow persistent, you know, authentication, but we have APIs with open authentication calls um, that never terminate, that never are inspected. Um, So we're seeing uh, the same kind of problems that have been present within the identity management space manifesting in the API space, and I'll emphasize it again, the problem being you know, volume and, and issues associated with the sheer number of APIs and how fast and how many times they're interacting with assets and resources. But I think that there's another piece that's really coming to light. And I'm working on this with um, a couple of, of companies in stealth and I'm working on it with uh, you know, policymakers as well, which is um, I do think that there is the possibility that API is the death of uh, static encryption. Um, I think that when we look at, you know, uh, AES, when we look at um, the reality of where encryption is today, um, we don't have a lot of excuses for not having pioneered uh, more elegant forms of encryption, you know, encryption that changes uh, keys on a transactional basis per transaction, right, making it very, very difficult for, uh, you know, those, you know, tokens to be reused, those tokens to be uh, minted and forged that we saw in the golden saml attack and solar winds making it very very difficult for those types of scenarios to play out and dynamic encryption may be where the big change starts to happen in api um, separate from identity management because it does seem that leveraging something like dynamic encryption um, will deliver uh, greater security across the api landscape uh, but it is you know new days i mean professor knitson brought up dynamic encryption in 2015 it's still, you know, highly academic. Like I said, a number of companies are taking a look at it, um, but we've got to get away from from the static key world. Um, if for no other reason than quantum's already proved that static keys aren't going to work either.
0: <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, so, in fact, you know, you mentioned the the short lived tokens. A lot of breaches recently, right, have been uh, leveraging access to tokens from users to access GitHubs and repos and different things. Uh, Jira, and whatever, right? Um, so do you see like the, uh, uh, the, the duration of the tokens? And, and also, you know, another massive uh, threats I've seen recently is on the DevSecOps tooling side, you have a lot of tokens uh, that are multi-tenant, meaning, you know, multiple uh, customers access, maybe, uh, you know, some scanning tool and the scanning tool uh, communicates to the, the CICD pipeline and has the same key across all the tenants inside of that uh, pipeline. And obviously, if someone gets that key, uh, they can do a lot of damage. Do you see like the the multi-tenancy, non-person entity? And I I don't see anyone even paying attention to how these tools communicate and how that can be done in a more secure fashion per uh, tenant or per user um, to have a more granular understanding of of what to do. Um, do, do you see that as, as a big piece of the identity threat there?
1: Yeah, without a doubt. And it, it, this is, it's kind of frustrating, right? Because the examples that you just gave for, you know, kind of cross-tenant, you know, cross-cloud provider um, access, Look, the, it, obviously those aren't being executed for security reasons, right? They're being executed to achieve, you know, business value, which is great. But this rush to achieve business value at all costs, particularly at the cost of security, just creates these significant problems that are so rooted in what we already know. I mean, I, the folks that are following on the chat, like, like does, does anybody question the fact that, you know, the three biggest weaknesses for nearly 30 years in, in security have been DNS, encryption, and identity? And we, we all know this. Right. And yet we see organizations, companies, cloud providers um, who are actively ignoring what we intuitively know are the weaknesses and recrafting and rebuilding those same weaknesses into those those new architectures over and over and over again. And obviously that kind of brings up the old uh, Descartes or Disraeli or whoever you believe said it. Right. That is the. Um, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Yet when we look at the, the you know, kind of the yield curve of cyber losses, cyber crime, breaches, exploits, it keeps going this direction, right? It is a hockey stick going up and to the right. And we keep standing around going, I don't know why it's happening. And then we go, but DNS encryption and identity still have not been effectively Treated and/or solve for from a security standpoint, and we co- go keep building stuff that ignores those facts, right? And I think it's unfortunate because um, you know we in the security community can crow all we want about knowing that these are the problems, but it, as you know, if the business side of the organization continues to drive for you know growth, feature functionality, capabilities at all costs, without understanding that we really already understand what the weaknesses are and how to remediate them. We're not going to see substantial changes anytime in the future.
0: And part of the issue is, you know, uh, big companies don't really know how to deal with this. The small companies just want to innovate and uh, raise money and sell. They don't really have this long term uh, vision of sustaining the business. So it's it's just about business fast and quick, no matter the consequence. So that's always a pretty uh, scary universe. So, you know, we we talk about uh, obviously identity, but you mentioned and I mentioned multiple times, as part of the, the security landscape of, of security nowadays, you cannot uh, claim you're doing anything close to zero trust without uh, continuous monitoring. Uh, obviously, we know it's an essential piece of security, but how does that uh, play when it comes to runtime security with API security?
1: Yeah, runtime, uh, runtime is where it's at, but it also presents us with a historical problem. Um so it, it's really interesting. There is a characteristic about APIs that I find and I, I think most of the industry finds very interesting and unique, um, which is that APIs, because of the tentacles uh, that are associated with what they reach out to, um, they may be reaching out to services and or data stores that you're not even aware of, you know, kind of second, third, fourth line down that transactional chain, is that um, you can do a great job at AST and do your, you know, API testing, you know, through your Agile sprints and, you know, come out clean. You do a great job, you know, kind of post uh, testing um, as you're in uh, in production. And then everything can go wrong, right? Because um, APIs can introduce behaviors post-implementation or post-production um, that none of those things catch, um, which really emphasizes the need for runtime security, Um, You know, a minor change to access a separate or different data store or possibly route traffic to an embargoed nation or there's so many different variations of these use cases. Um, You know, none of those might manifest in your actual day to day development building deployment of these APIs. But then three months after you've deployed it, all of a sudden it does. Now that gets into the you've got to catch that with the behavioral and the analytics associated with understanding your baseline. But then you obviously need to be able to take action, right? So the executing of, of, you know, an action in runtime is absolutely critical in the API space. Now, the reason why I say it has historical problems is, is, and I've experienced this in many conversations with many organizations, is they go, oh, that's great. We absolutely need that. And then you go, cool. So what's going to happen is, is that um, when runtime security is executed for this particular API, if it notices traffic coming out of the Ukraine, or it notices traffic coming out of Uzbekistan, or it's got traffic, it's being routed out of North Korea. Uh, we are gonna terminate the ability for any of those nations to be able to utilize that API. And then the business owner looks at me and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, we can't automatically shut that off because we might actually have a customer who's in the Ukraine and traveling at that time. And we can't in- inconvenience a customer for the sake of the massive amount of risk that's being introduced by the nations that are currently, you know, utilizing this API. And um, I, I I don't even say that tongue in cheek. I mean, that was actually a real conversation. And so, you know, when we look at, at runtime related security controls, um, they have always been marginalized in, in terms of operationalization by companies because of concerns about production or customer impact or transactional impact, those types of concerns are warranted, but they're rarely ever dimensioned against the broader amount of risk that's associated with the the use or leveraging of any given technolo- technology, but specifically APIs.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting example from that customer. Obviously, I, I get the, the point of, you know, disrupting customer engagements. Uh, but at the same time there's a balance to be found and and people struggle with the balance right and then uh, and then you end up in a disastrous situation with a tremendous uh, cyber exposure and and then the customer leaves because he's is upset that you you lost his data so i don't know which one is yeah. worse but, uh, uh, so obviously um, when you look at apis as 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 a whole do you do you find them to be bringing some additional uh, security problems?
1: Yes. The the additional security problems really kind of orbit around the ability for bad actors to conduct these nuanced changes um, or changes over time to the APIs, right? This is I, – I think that this is a challenging space for, for APIs in general because – um most companies struggle with barefaced attacks <laughs> right oh, like yeah. it, you you actually know something is wrong and and you're you're trying to respond in real time to take action and and mitigate that risk um and that's not that's not a negative statement i mean i've i've been a CISO. i've, I've run security organizations that span 72 companies or 72 nations um, including China, right? It's a hard job. And, but the, the, this ability for the tweaking of APIs um, and, and also introducing APIs into um, you know kind of the, the OSS space and embedding problematic uh, APIs with concealed uh, capabilities is, uh, is very, very troubling from a security standpoint, right? Now the the you know the easy answer to that is 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 simply rehashing many of the, the points that we've made throughout this conversation, right? Know your APIs. Ideally, know your third parties' APIs. Understand what they do. Monitor them over time. But I do you know I do wonder if the API layer um, has a has a as more of an inherent weakness. Um, relative to its ability to be leveraged to do bad things in ways that are very, very difficult to divine or uh, catch. So I think that that's a, you know, I really think that that's an open-ended, you know, statement and observation to the broader community. I think it begs conversations around um, efforts for, say, an open standard for API development, um, and as well as, you know, documented standards for APIs within organizations that are, so that you don't have all of these, you know, disparate methods to call APIs, um, that you're you're honing things down to, you know, industry strength uh, supported and understood API structures. Um, and, and as long as this kind of, um, you know, level of, of um, diversity uh, from a uh, deployment and a development standpoint uh, persists within organizations, I think it introduces the possibility for a, a new class of, of security issues.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, we, we talked about the government uh, use cases a little bit and before leaving the government, one of my uh, last contribution was to help with the uh, uh, president executive order on, on zero trust and SBOM. and, um, What do you find uh, that executive order's implication to be when it comes to API security?
1: Well, there's definitely been an immediate operational impact um, that I've been experiencing in conversations with uh, government agencies and organizations over the last uh, several months, which is uh, however it was crafted, you know, kind of post EO into administrative orders, large numbers of government agencies clearly understand that they need to have a inventory of their APIs. Um, those conversations I'm having weekly, right, with with organizations. And I think that this is a space where the pub or the government sector, um, at least notionally or intellectually may be ahead of the private sector. Because in conversations with uh, government agencies, One of the things that i find really encouraging is is that there's a clear understanding of the threat and risk of apis now some of that is structural um because you know as you know better than i do you know lots of government agencies are you know either uh, currently you know in the midst of a cloud journey um or um they may never embark on that cloud journey right they they may stay landed asset because of you know mission critical factors or you know, needs for confidentiality, state secrets, those types of issues. So they 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 may be in in that landed data center world um, for eternity, right? And uh, and yet they're also trying to maximize the value of their uh, of their data assets and their application assets, um, which they're doing via APIs. So I think that you know people that have worked you know in kind of a you know that that solid government structure data center. Um, you know, tight controls around application development, all those types of things, they immediately know the risk that APIs represent to them because they're using those APIs to open up their world. And anything that equates to opening up their world is is treated with caution, right? So I'm definitely seeing a lot of those activities. Now, there is a broader misunderstanding, um, I think, at the EO level. Um, you know, as we know, executive orders orders aren't particularly detailed or granular in their detail, um, you know, so there, there were a lot of question marks about where does API uh, fit within a zero trust framework, um, as a result of the EO. And uh, I think that those conversations are ongoing. Obviously, the work that I'm doing with, uh, you know, John Kindervag and uh, Chase Cunningham and Eve Mahler and, uh, you know, uh, Greg Towill uh, around uh, zero trust You know those conversations are about progressing the zero trust architecture conversation into that layer seven, um, with in a lot of enthusiasm to do so. But if the folks that are in kind of the ZT, you know, kind of thought leadership space are just now thinking about this, obviously, when we look at it from uh, the EO and the government, uh, you know, standpoint, there's got to be a lot of uh, still a lot of operational confusion on how to execute an API security program or strategy uh, within these agencies. So I think that the, the answer to that is, is that, um, you know, this is a new story in progress uh, when it comes to ZT and API security, particularly within uh, the federal government. Uh, but there is a, a somewhat of an intuitive and inherent uh, understanding of the risks that APIs uh, expose uh, government organizations to, which is causing them to move, uh, you know, Fast in relation to how fast government agencies normally uh, move, um, they're they're moving a little bit faster than I than I've seen in the past on different other types of initiatives and accords.
0: Yeah, that's been improving. You know, it's it's a journey, but uh, I think the more people are getting used to cloud, and now you know uh, the eccentricity, you know zero trust. I think uh, obviously that starts to uh, adjust the uh, the brain in terms of uh, speed and ability to move at the pace of relevance for these teams. And uh, that's great to see, you know, but uh, it, it's a definitely uh, a pretty heavy uh, lift. So. Yeah, agreed. So, you know, looking at, um, you know, API security for, for a lot of our audience, uh, obviously being targeted by uh, nation state actors. What do you think is the value for, for these uh, actors?
1: Wow, it, it, the the nation state space troubles me um, as it relates to API security. The if we look at you know if we look at nation state activity around um, citizen data enrichment, I'll be very very specific about a use case. Right, and we we see a breach you know like uh, Optus uh, had in Australia, a cell phone service provider, mobile provider in in the APAC region, and we see forty million unique customer accounts that are, uh, you know, scraped off of an open API endpoint. Um, that data, you know, a lot of times, you know, this audience should appreciate this. A lot of times the news stories are out there, you know, flashing about how, you know, somebody else's, you know, uh, customer store was breached and uh, their, their information is being sold on the dark web for whatever. Um, it, it, that's, to me, that's disingenuous. Because in reality, um, the, the nation state actors are gobbling that information up to create detailed profiles about um, human beings, not just in the United States, but, but all over uh, the free democratic world. right? And, and we know this because we know what we learned about what China was trying to accomplish with the OPM breach years ago which was to create detailed identity profiles for each American citizen, right? Especially those that um, had access to sensitive operations and infrastructure. So, you know, this, the the things that we see in the media that just seem to dismiss the importance of the value of the information that's being exploited through APIs um, takes everybody's eye off the ball as it relates to nation state. Um, and so, you know, what I'm concerned about is that API exploits are continuing to provide, um, important detailed digital ammunition for our adversaries at the nation state level. And, uh, and, and now the reason that I have those concerns is because as we've already acknowledged, uh, the vast majority of organizations, agencies, as well as companies still do not have a programmatic approach to API security. So as long as those assets um, stay vulnerable uh, via APIs, nation states are going to be uh, capitalizing on that exploit uh, and attack surface uh, as as often and as fast as they can, which we, again, are already seeing. So this is, um, you know, my, my concern is, is that uh, you know this API security space because of the lack of attention uh, that it truly deserves from a risk standpoint is just creating uh, greater and greater advantages for our adversaries uh, in the nation state space
0: yeah that's uh that's a pretty scary you know universe we live in I guess but that's a real world you know no kumbaya in uh, in doD you know we can do like uh... All friends in Silicon Valley all the time yep. we have to uh, <laughs> to deal with the real the real world <laughs> Agreed. Um, so obviously you know traceable has been uh, really pushing the envelope when it comes to uh, paying attention to uh, all these issues and providing uh, solutions to uh, to not only the, the commercial side but also the government. What have you have you seen? You started what was it four or five months ago? I forgot. Yeah, uh, five. like five. Yeah. Uh, what have you seen in, now that you've been there enough to to have an opinion? I guess. What have you seen makes you uh, you know addressing the problem differently from others?
1: Well, I, I think a lot of that goes to the the, the genetics of traceable uh, and, and our founder, uh, and, and co-founder, you know, Jyoti Bansal, uh, for anybody that, um, has not. Uh, heard he's of a guest
0: on the next episode, by the way, Excellent. next, uh, Excellent. <laughs> uh, but he's going to come talking about Harness, his other company, yep. <laughs> uh, because he's, he's sleeping all day. So he has a fund, he has a traceable and he has Harness. So that's yeah. all he does.
1: You know, well, is, and it's it, a boring it, guy. Yeah, it's absolutely, you know, again, for folks that are, you know, watching today, um if you've not done any research about Jyoti Bansal i i definitely encourage you to do so and the reason is that i i say that is because you know jyoti spent a number of years building a company that that a lot of people are familiar with App dynamics and um in building App dynamics and subsequently selling it at the day it's almost legendary selling it the day before ipo to cisco um, he he really embarked on he was the pioneer in the space where you know, Dynatrace and a number of other companies are today. Um, and uh, in, in he, he rooted his understanding of application behaviors and risk and exposure at the analytical level, right, at the code line level. And, and in doing that with AppDynamics, it gave him the, the knowledge and the experience to attack the API security space with the same kind of lens. Right, this this ability for us to divine data um, and and understand the behaviors of the APIs um, at the you know at the core code level all comes from what what Jyoti built before. Obviously, he's now applying it to a different use case and a different set of um, technological and business problems. Uh, but I do think that that's where uh, the big differentiator is, and uh, you know, important industry secret. Um, that, uh, that, that I love about this company after five months with them. Um, there, there is a cohort and I won't say the numbers because it is one of our key differentiators, uh, but there are a cohort, a substantial number of developers and engineers um, that have been with Jyoti for more than a dozen years. And uh, like I like to say, you know, they don't just finish each other's code, they finish each other's sentences. And when you have a group of of developers and engineers um, that can turn a feature request around in days, not weeks or months, um, you have a distinct advantage to innovate, uh, a distinct advantage to deliver additional value and and, and be able to respond to um, not just changes, but new understandings and new discoveries within the API security threat landscape at light speed, which nobody else in, in the uh, in the API security business can do. Yeah,
0: the, the team is very impressive. You know, I think uh, the ability for Jody to to retain the talent and uh, get them to, to stay with him for, for so many years tells you not only the, the kind of leader he is, but also uh, kind of the visionary aspect of his brain that's always pretty impressive to me. We're going to have him next Tuesday, 1 p.m., everybody, so get excited. That's going to be a fun uh, episode. So, with that, uh, what do you think uh, all the, the challenges that we see now with the economy? And do, do you feel like, you know, investing and, and kind of targeting also uh, the federal side um, is kind of a, a great idea for, for companies like you, uh, despite, you know, obviously the, the federal side being, being very slow, it's also a market that doesn't slow down when there's a uh, yeah. A recession so do you find it to be a great crutch in, in that use case
1: well I, there's an advantage to the current economy as it relates to a company like ours doing business with uh with, with the federal government agencies which is um the current economy gives us the the luxury of time right to to be on the government schedule timelines and time frames for decision making um where we're not you know we're not pushing as fast as possible to close a deal um, which is unrealistic in a great economy um, but in a you know an economy that we currently have it it gives us the opportunity to do that work from a business development standpoint in a much more measured um, much more detailed much more um, uh, valuable way with our government agency uh, buyers and counterparts so um, you know this is it, the the challenge with a, a you know like our past seven or eight years economy um, is it it creates so much momentum in the private sector for selling and and executing on uh, deals that um, you take a look at the government sector and you go well do we really want to go spend a year and a half in in that space you know with no additional revenue dollars you know being generated. Uh, when we can go put all of our marketing dollars and energy into the private sector, um, and unfortunately, that's the, the the way that the the, the sales game uh, works, right? If there's you know tons of dollars to be had on this side, why well, I'm going to go through the the challenging uh, procurement cycles that are associated with the federal government. Obviously, once the economy changed, then that kind of changes companies' expectations because I can tell you internally at, at Traceable. Um, and I, I've made this comment many, many times, we look at the situation as, by the time we are you know, delivering value to, um, to our, our government agency partners, um, w- we will be out of this economic cycle. We know that th- that's gonna happen, right? We, we watch all the trades and see what's going on in, in global economy, just like everybody else. And, we, and, and that's an ideal situation for us because we'd rather have the solution up in production and running, delivering value and mitigating risk than, you know, being arguing about contractual terms. Um, So now this gives us the luxury and time and space uh, to be able to do that effectively.
0: Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, And, you know, I I guess tied to that, right? uh, What what keeps you up at night? Wow. What
1: keeps me up at night is the basics. Um, You know, this is, uh, you know, I think that the most catastrophic learning that I had coming into, you know, information security, cybersecurity years ago, was how bad we are at doing the basics. And, you know, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna show a little of my my stripes on my sleeve when I say this, like the reason that, you know, you do DNC, the reason that you do range qualification, the reason that you are doing, you know, these, these practices and field exercises Um, in, when you're in military services, so you become a master of the basics. And the number of companies, you know, the number of companies around the world that are not masters of the basics is disappointing. Um, You know, one of the examples that I give frequently is, is, uh, you know, I've had, you know, companies that have talked to me and said, you know, prior to my traceable time, we said, you know, I want this capability and I want biometrics and I want this, that and the other. And I immediately say, well, you know, you're a hybrid environment, right? And they say, yes. And I said, when was the last time you hygiened your active directory environment? And the room goes silent, right. right? And and I'm like, so how about you come back and talk to me after you've hygiened your AD? Because all of the inherent risk that you currently have in your identity space is bound up in the fact that you haven't cleaned up your active directory in 20 years. And and it's those basic mechanics being missed in in companies around the world and organizations around the world and i i'm not telling tales you guys see this in the news every single day and you go really that's how you got breached like you got breached through something as simple as that um that those are the the dynamics that exist today within the security world that um that make it really really hard to go to sleep sometimes
0: do you find the U.S. companies to do do better than European and, and Chinese and maybe uh, other countries? Or where, where are we standing when it comes to the defensive side, I guess? It,
1: I don't know if it's a universal global human characteristic. I, I actually think that the, the vast majority of the world, regardless of of, uh, you know, where on the continent they're located, it stinks at the basics. And it. it It makes sense because, you know, most, you know, I I get pushback on the military example. Right. Um, In in the military, the demand is to be disciplined by design and most companies and organizations can't be disciplined by design. Um, When we look at the China example, we could say, you know, China probably gets the basics better, uh, done better, um, you know, because of the nature of their their government and their society. Um, but if, if you look at breach reports and you look at how Chinese companies and organizations get uh, hacked and exploited, um, which is easier to do, by the way, if you're in the APAC region, um, that news doesn't necessarily get reported really heavily here in the United States for some reason. Um, you'd see that they make the same boneheaded mistakes uh, on the basics on a on a pretty reasonable or a pretty regular basis, um, you know. So I think it's. I think it more speaks to universal human characteristics. um, And also this, uh, I mentioned it earlier, and also this uh, need for us sometime to ascribe a mysticism uh, to technology that it doesn't deserve. Um, Technology is a means of production. Technology is a better tractor. Um, And when we start treating it like it is uh, something different than that, uh, we begin to neglect the basics because they're not cool and sexy and they don't add to the mysticism and mythology uh, of our technology footprint. And I think it's all of these kind of human characteristics that have led to uh, this uh, this absence of detail, focus, and, uh, and and operational excellence on the basics.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting, right? Because obviously, development teams and and IT teams that are passionate about technologies are usually the, the best ones, but also. Then they have the the bias of getting excited by shiny objects, and so they're gonna they're gonna do uh, uh they're gonna focus on on the the shiny things and forget about the basics. That's why I keep uh, looking at you know assessments. I remember at DHS when I assessed uh, critical infrastructure uh, companies and and teams, uh, honestly, the the results were so bad it was mind boggling. But but it's also like all the basics were not even uh, even thought about. It, it wasn't even like Part of the discussion.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: That's that's a that's an interesting kind of human trait. Um, obviously, consequences can be different based on the, the organization. Uh, we have a we have a couple of questions from the audience. Um, one is uh, about the what what do you see um, in the between the uh, the evolution of of service mesh. And, and APIs, do, do, what do you see the impact of service mesh being to API security?
1: Yeah, that, that is a great question uh, because uh, I actually met uh, Nick and I were having a conversation earlier today, and I I meant to actually bring up um, this this uh, discussion about mesh, which is you know the the architectural concept that that is getting a lot of play recently. I, I obviously. I think, from an evolutionary standpoint, service mesh is is the direction the world's going. Um, but I actually think that substantial amounts of the threads that are uh, used to weave that mesh, if I can extend the analogy, um, are going to be API and microservices. So I think that, um, yeah, I think that the the that that mesh plane then is. Highly dependent upon, I'll use the term uh, that was mentioned uh, by Siddharth earlier, uh, robust and secure APIs. Um, if we haven't emphasized that point in this conversation, we're not in that world yet, uh, which which raises concerns that if we push rapidly um, into into these notions of, of mesh, whether they're identity meshes or service meshes, um, you know, uh, network mesh. Um, that uh this absence of robust and secure apis from a programmatic standpoint are going to create um are going to create mesh situations that are um corrupted or co-opted on arrival right that's not that's not the ideal state that we want because i do believe in the value that um these mesh approaches are going to deliver um you know it, it all it is is again the the further virtualization and obliteration of uh, of a perimeter and firewall based world but um, it's it's going to be highly dependent upon robust and secure api's
0: yeah no doubt um, and and yeah you know so definitely the the mesh market is is booming uh, and and the API market is booming and and all of them are intertwined into this web of uh, complexity so that's gonna be an interesting uh, evolution uh, someone was asking on Twitter um, effectively what is the uh, uh, interconnect all the future of api uh, gateways now in the world of Kubernetes of and and service mesh i guess
1: yeah that's a that's a also a great question um I, api gateways are are a bit um strange of, from my perspective in that um the the value proposition that they they launched themselves on was was purely pretty pure and pretty simple right they um, you know, like I always like to say, you know, the API gateway is just basically the equivalent of a router. Um, you know, it's it's yeah. dictating, yeah, it's dictating the directions of 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 API traffic, not network traffic, but it's the same fundamental principle. And it, when we look at the API gateway space, you would assume that API gateways would be rapidly evolving to uh, accommodate for all of the different Aspects of operational and security management of APIs, and they're not. Which that's the piece that I find very strange. Um, and uh, and and the w- the window of opportunity for them to do so is probably past. When we look at a MuleSoft or AppG or, uh, Nginx, or any of these uh, these other gateways, because um, the the reality is is that uh, just towards the end of 2022, um, what I like to call the sleeping giants awoke around API security. Now, some of this is driven by, you know, Gartner's definition on CNAP. um, And and some of it's driven by kind of the market growth in in SASE and XDR and, you know, everything that's going on on the discussions relative to edge. Um, But uh, when when you look at what's happening in the marketplace, um, organizations like Palo Alto, F5, Microsoft, even Cisco, all of them are beginning to make comments, statements, and movements relative to API security. So when we look at the gateway space, I think that there was an evolutionary opportunity for them to grow their capabilities across API operations, management, and security. They did not do so. They stayed in a specific lane. And, um, and as a result, I think that uh, the energy, and you know, this is speaking from the startup solution side of the equation, uh, the investment energy associated with uh, achieving those those capabilities um, is is now being uh, oriented towards companies like Traceable. Uh, and also, you know, uh, investment funds or dollars available for R&D in these sleeping giants is beginning to be activated. So um, it, I don't think it necessarily means that API gateways are, you know, going the way of the dinosaur. Um, I mean, I think it means that, you know, one or two stay as probably standalone entities and the vast majority of the gateway market gets absorbed into um, the capabilities of any of these other larger companies that I mentioned.
0: And so, some people argue that the mesh. Um, now that the mesh is doing ingress egress, is going to probably disrupt drastically the uh, uh, the API gateway market as well. So
1: it it, it will. I, I think the only caution that I would give on that note is is that, um, you know, everybody. On, that's watching this right now, <laughs> and then myself included, uh, we're all going to be dead and buried in the grave before hybrid IT is done. Um, the reality is is that uh, obviously, ninety-seven percent of the world's compute on a nightly basis is still done by mainframes. Um, AS 400s are a thing. Mid range is still you know running in many companies. Um, yeah. You know, vast Linux farms. Like the 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 reality is is the API gateways will definitely have a necessity. Um, it, you know, but it may be a, in a much more diminished capacity as you mentioned as mesh um, continues to achieve its goals.
0: Yeah, no doubt no doubt. Uh, a related question for you, I guess, but um, how do you create documentation in an agile environment? Well,
1: so I am so biased on this particular topic because I'm old and uh, I had mentioned that my entry point into IT uh, back in the day, was in project and program management so I'm an old old waterfall guy um, and uh, agile to me um, was always problematic as, as it kind of gained uh, you, you know a footing uh, in our in our development methodologies uh, because of the documentation piece right um, so I think that um, you know agile hasn't you um, successfully achieved critical mass and creating quality documentation as a methodology up to this point. I don't think that that's, um, I don't think that that's, well, it is problematic, but I don't think that it's an Achilles heel. Um, I, I think it's just a reality again, that in this go fast world of delivering business value, um, the need to actually rationalize and explain uh, what code is doing has been for the most part, cast aside. So I think that um, the only answer to that is achieving successfully greater levels of maturity with Agile and Scrum within any given organization, which takes a focused commitment and it takes a a disciplined approach um, that many companies are just willing to forego. And uh, I think that's unfortunate because obviously, like the old waterfall guy is going to say that Agile has delivered exponentially more value than waterfall ever did and you're talking about somebody that used to manage 150,000 hour monolithic code releases on a three time a year basis um, and and the value that's being delivered against that model is so much greater using agile um, but the the inability for us to uh, invoke discipline um, and frankly quality into agile has you know just been, uh, a titanic struggle, and I think that it can only be solved on a company by company basis, uh, with the application of focus and discipline, and a and a demand to you know achieve the expected uh, deliverables that are required in agile, as opposed to just um, ignoring when they're not uh, actually delivered.
0: Yeah, and, it's, and I think it's a maturity thing too, right? So DevSecOps teams, you know, which to me is kind of the evolution of agile. Now you're gonna have gate, right? Both of, of documentation gate, compliance gate, and security gate, and quality gate. Um, not everything, you know, is is chaos. You know, Moss was mentioning here, agile is chaos. I would argue that's only true when you have less mature teams, which is probably what you find in, in the on the in the government, unfortunately. Still, um, agile to me is control chaos if you do it well, right? So there is chaos, but it's. Well, yeah.
1: I think there's also a lot of uh, marketing on, on agile, right? I, I've walked into companies. I've actually walked into my own development team at one time and, and and I said, do you guys use agile? And they go, yeah. And they said, well, how, you know, what's your release cycle? And they go, well, our next sprint delivers in three months. And I'm like, you're not doing agile. <laughs> no, right? right. Like, so, yeah. so, you know, we have oh, a lot of the that's uh yeah. that's
0: a duty safe. The yeah. beautiful safe framework that uh, is anti-agile just with its name. So,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, just because you're using whiteboard, uh, whiteboards and post-it notes does not mean you're actually yeah. achieving agile. It's all about the
0: post-its. It's all about the post-its. Don't you know that? That's all it takes. Post-its. Uh, but you know, back to documentation. I think um, funny enough, uh, I'm going to plug something here, but I think it's pretty funny because when I wrote the code of my uh, Chat GPT bot. I did not write any comments, any, any documentation in the code, in the API. But at the end of it, uh, well, at least at the my release, um, I asked the bot to write the, the, the comment. And uh, it took my code and added all the documentation for me. So maybe the answer is going to be uh, you know, using a bot to do it for, for us because we're lazy people. Uh, in fact, 80% of the code was actually created by the bot, including the logo. My logo I'm going to release soon uh was completely created by the bot the ui the sequel the back end wow uh, i would say 95 percent of the, of that was done by the bot i'm just like a pretty face again so i do kind
1: of i do like i do like andrew's comment yes i believe that 3m gets royalties for agile
0: <laughs> yes yes you imagine how many post-its they solved with this thing i don't know who who got the idea first to do that but uh Yep. And then there was this uh this movement i don't know if you remember but the people in windows in office buildings they would put uh post-its to create shapes and things and communicate i know in new york city it was huge they had uh, different windows and everybody was like putting stuff in the window with stickers making shapes and i, I bet 3m was in on this somewhere <laughs> you know that would, that would be surprising it's it's on GitHub, but it's a private repo. I don't do open source. I'm a greedy guy, you know. We're gonna make a lot of money with this <laughs> uh, to answer Gerald's uh, question. Uh, and the name of the company is gonna be uh, Ask Sage. So we're gonna we're gonna call it Sage. It's it's gonna be a woman, uh, of dear robot, uh, and it's gonna be uh, uh, obviously wise a wise woman. So kind of a play there between. Sage and, and Wise. Um, and uh, we're starting with uh, pretty big uh, DoD use cases. Um, we we ingested a good example for people that are going to laugh, and that's going to make you laugh too. We ingested uh, JSON, a Chinese um, resume, and procurement data that we have, right? And uh, all in uh, in Chinese. And I just copy and paste the JSON in Chinese to the bar and just t- tell it to summarize it back in English and you know I, I put it first on Google Translate because I don't speak Chinese right so I look Google Translate Translate the JSON so you see the JSON you see the fields you see the stuff in English great you read the stuff as a human I would not be able to really get to uh, to really understand like for example the person right I see where they work I see age I see, but I, it doesn't make me a, a picture a visual picture of the person but when I put it into the bot and I was able to say you know, here is the um, uh, Jason and just summarize it. It, He wrote me like a paragraph, right? Like three sentences of who that uh, Chinese person was. And it was just mind boggling to me how now it's like right in front of me. I would see, you know, oh, he's, he's 32 years old from there, worked on this, you know. And so it's just the use cases are just tremendous. I actually asked the bot after ingesting, the procurement data, you know, where is China uh, focusing on spending money uh, this month? And he gave us like heroes of sectors, boom, 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 you know, summarizing <laughs> kind of the um, the money being spent on the, you know, because we ingested the procurement data. Um, you know, as a human to do something like this, I'm sure some people can do it, but uh, it's just, uh, you know, going through thousands of pages of document in, in, in two seconds, you know, it's just, um, I think that's going to really disrupt disrupt everything we know yep. so anyway that yep. was a fun thing i agree um so now uh you know last words to you uh, i'm gonna remind everybody first before letting you do that that the, the next episode on uh, january 24th 1 p.m eastern uh we have uh, our dear friend uh, jody joining us to talk about harness uh the cicd uh DevSecOps uh Uh, Platform. So, Jody will be on 1 p.m. Eastern, CEO of both uh, your CEO, I guess, uh, of Traceable AI and uh, Harness. And he has a a fund, a pretty significant fund, a VC fund as well. So, we'll talk about all that stuff and how he manages to do all so much, you know, with uh, uh, so little time, right? Uh, So, that's going to be interesting. And with that, uh, last last words uh, with you, Richard. Thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that one of my questions to JT when I was uh, having an interview with him was, how is it that you do six times more than I in the same 24 hours? Um, so uh, definitely, uh, for the folks watching, uh, look forward to you tuning in and learning from JT. Um, You know, from my end, obviously, um, I'm passionate about the issues of uh, security in the digital world uh, for everybody. And uh, I, I'm just, you know, thankful for the opportunity, Nick, to be on your show, the opportunity to be out there, you know, check me out on on LinkedIn if you want to see where I'm speaking next. Um, I'll be uh, be out on the trail starting in about two weeks uh, and probably at every one of the major conferences and out on the East Coast here uh, about March as well. So I uh, look forward to meeting any of you in person if that's an opportunity. And uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to have the conversation.
0: All right. Thanks, everybody. You stay safe and you keep up the great work. So our kids have a fighting chance at winning against China 20 years from now. Stay safe. See you soon.